Welcome to Navarro Live. I'm Aaron Bastani. On this evening's show, I'm joined by the one and only Michael Walker. Michael, how are you? I am very well. Feeling a little bit perkier than I have been the last few days. Still suffering from somewhat of a long flu, but I'm, I, I feel like I've, I've, I've made a breakthrough today. Well, that's what we like to hear. A breakthrough by Michael Walker. Very glad <laughs> you can join us uh, this evening. On tonight's show, we'll be looking at dentistry in Britain and the strange excuse that Tories have for people being forced to remove their own teeth. The government has more money than expected. Joe Biden announces that he's running for a second term and a famous Silicon Valley billionaire has been extremely weird. Can you guess who it is? First story. Water companies are dumping sewage into our seas, lakes and rivers every two and a half minutes. You heard that right. The Environment Agency has reported that private water companies in Britain flush sewage into our open waters around 800 times a day. According to Labour, in the last seven years, sewage has been flushed into open waters for what amounts to 11 million running hours. That's why Labour's Jim McMahon, the Shadow Environment Secretary, brought a bill to Parliament that would fine water companies every time they discharged muck into British waters. Here's how he introduced the bill. Mr Speaker, I beg to move the motion on the order paper in my name and those of my honourable friends, which would allow for parliamentary time on Tuesday the 2nd of May to progress Labour's bill that would finally see an end to the Tory sewage scandal. Mr Speaker, the reason we're here today, the reason we're here today is because the country we love and the quality of life for millions of working people is being treated with utter contempt, dumped on with raw human sewage, dumped on on an industrial scale, and dumped on with at least 1.5 million sewage dumps last year alone. Dumped on for a total of 11 million running hours. That's a sewage dump every two and a half minutes. And just in the course of this debate, the country will see 70 sewage dumps taking place. In the places where people have invested everything they have. The places where people have put down their roots and where they've invested the most precious of things. Their families, their shared futures. Because these sewage dumps are going into the seas where people swim. The canals where people take their dogs for a walk alongside. And the very beaches where our children build sandcastles. Now, it's clear that either the Tories don't know or they don't care about the human impact of the Tory sewage scandal. Labour's bill would also make it compulsory for water companies to... Labour's bill would also make it compulsory for water companies to monitor all sewage outlets. It's amazing they don't do that already, of course. And it would set legally binding targets to reduce the number and size of dumping events. But the Tories were having none of it. Here's Environment Secretary... Therese Coffey. Mr Speaker, this government has already taken action. Now, reading the motion today, we already have a target for reduction in sewage discharges, which we will put into law. We've already consulted to remove caps on financial penalties, and we've already undertaken an assessment of sewage discharges. But unlike the opposition, we have a credible, costed plan to stop the scourge of sewage. Now, today, we've already heard a barrage of blame, a finger-pointing, but when it comes down to it, we have not had a credible credible costed plan to tackle this. 
You know, I'm used to the personal attacks, the diatribes, the cheap shots. Yeah. I tell you, Labour's plan is not a cheap plan. I grew up, or my parents lived in Frodsham for some time, so I'm very conscious of the River Weave, and of course I grew up in Liverpool, so I'm very conscious of the River Mersey. That has got cleaner and cleaner over time, thanks to ongoing continued investment in all that time. And, and what I would say, you know, frankly, we should be having a grown-up to date about the public. You know, frankly, a lot of this plan that he sets out is pointless because it's already being done. And to some extent, you know, frankly, we were talking about food. I guess the Honourable Gentleman has taken up growing magic mushrooms. You know, he's trying to keep the... They didn't publish this data. They weren't monitoring it. They kept people in the dark and they fed them BS with all the time they were in government. What Coffee didn't mention there is that the Tories' plan is for all water companies to, quote, improve storm overflows into bathing or nature sites by 2035. And they would only be required to deal with all sewage dumping by 2050. By then, Michael Walker might be Michael Walking Frame. But following a three-hour debate, MPs voted 290 to 198 to kill off the Labour bill. But perhaps it doesn't matter because now Labour has this campaign material for next month's local elections. As you can see here, very proud of UK Labour MPs who voted to end the Tory sewage scandal. By voting down UK Labour's motion and bill, Tory MPs have again given the green light for sewage dumping to continue for decades to come. It's a Tory sewage scandal. Michael, people really care about this, don't they, as an issue, all this effluence going into our waterways it's really emotional yeah i mean it brings a lot in doesn't it i suppose because you know small c conservatism you care about nature uh, it's less abstract than climate change obviously i think climate change is a bigger civilizational threat than pollution in our rivers but th this is the kind of environmental issue which i think really sort of tugs at people's heartstrings and it is an issue where i mean it's a shame that neither of the two parties are really talking about what's happened here which is that we privatized a natural monopoly, which should never have been in private hands. There's no benefit at all to it being in private hands. And now we are really reaping the consequences. So just a few stats for you. 65 billion pounds paid in dividends since privatization in 1991 to the water companies. 70% of them are owned by international investment funds. And then uh, the result, England leaks 20% of our water supply compared to 5% in Germany. In Scotland, where you still have privatized water, they invest 35% more into the infrastructure than we do. Um, and then the other element you've got here is austerity. So basically the Environment Agency, who would be sort of reporting on this stuff, investigating this, they've had their budgets cut by 50% since 2010, so over the austerity period. And then um, I suppose this is the story in so many of these situations where we've been failed by outsourcing things to private companies, which is where they get to self-report. So instead of there being a government agency that says, okay, if we're going to give you the right to control this 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 key part of key piece of infrastructure, we're definitely going to at least police what you're doing. No, they say we're going to give you control over this monopoly, and then you yourselves are going to be in charge of seeing if you're failing the public or not. So the water companies have been monitoring their own release of waste. So it's been in part to do with sort of grassroots activism and sort of people who are passionate about rivers to sort of step in where the state has stepped back and work out that any of this is happening. So essentially now we're just way, way, way behind the curve. And yes, it will be very expensive to fix, but um, 66 billion pounds has gone in dividends to shareholders. So that would pay for quite a lot of it. I think the super sewer 
um, which they just, I think they're, they're close to completing under London. And the idea with that is that once, once that is open, we should have fewer overflows into rivers because the reason you get the overflow is that you have you know, heavy rain around and then so that our toilets don't sort of, so, so water doesn't come up back through our toilets, they have to release water into rivers. Uh, and then that's wastewater, obviously. So w- what you want is bigger sewers. Hopefully this new sewer they've built under London will, will help a little bit. That was four billion pounds. We could definitely afford one of those in every city in Britain if we hadn't given 66 billion pounds to the water companies who've done absolutely nothing for us whatsoever. In terms of the money going as well to the people that are the executives of these water companies, I, I saw some data somewhere that showed that their pay for 2022-2023 went up by 7.5%. And I think the average sort of head honcho now of a privatized water company is earning around a million pounds a year. There's an extra level to it there as well, isn't there, Michael? That People are paying more and more for less and less, for dirtier rivers, more polluted coastlines. And yet the people at the top, rather than being punished, actually get pay rises, which we're not seeing for teachers or for nurses or for junior doctors. Comparing them to nurses and junior doctors, et cetera, et cetera, they're public sector workers. And what the government seems to be trying to do is implement some kind of incomes policy where they, they, they make us all accept low pay rises by making an example of public sector workers. Also, obviously, they don't want to tax the rich, so we don't have the budgets we need for the NHS and, and the like. I mean, in terms of why these guys still have their incomes increasing um, when, you know, if they were a proper private sector company, you know, so they sort of quasi private sector companies, is that if you failed this much and you faced some competition, you would go out of business, right? So mixed economies, when you're looking at, I, I'm not necessarily an anti-capitalist. I think that markets and private ownership of some sectors make sense. And it makes sense in those sectors where you have competition between businesses. And so they have to innovate, they have to outcompete other firms, they have to try and lower prices while increasing quality. Um, now that works in some industries where it's 100% not gonna work is in water. We can't say, oh, Thames Water is releasing too much crap into the the rivers and my water is too expensive and they're leaking too much water under the ground, so I'm going to switch. No, you're stuck with whatever company you are with, depending on what region of the country you live in, which is why it's known as a natural monopoly. None of the benefits of free market economics, none of the benefits of capitalism apply to something like water because the the market mechanism doesn't function, which is why if you privatize the thing instead of having it in public hands, you can have people getting stinking rich for, for providing a terrible, terrible service. I mean, it applies to railways, it applies to, to water. The concept of a natural monopoly, you learn it in you know, A-level economics, but for some reason, um, governments in this country have forgotten about it for the last 40 years. Next story. Brits are famous for their bad teeth. Immediately following the end of the Second World War, the nation's dentures were reported to be in a worse state than those in occupied Germany. That started to change in 1948, with dentistry brought under the new NHS and made free at the point of use. In the first nine months of its existence, NHS dentists provided over 33 million artificial teeth. But in recent years, we've started to slide backwards again. Last month, analysis of the GP survey suggested that one in four adults, which is around 11 million people, were either unable to get an appointment with a dentist, were languishing on a waiting list, or were put off by long waits or the cost. That was up from 4 million in 2019. Last year, a BBC investigation found that nine in 10 NHS dentists aren't taking on new patients. Meanwhile, a study commissioned by the Liberal Democrats a week ago concluded that less than half of children have seen a dentist in the past year. But numbers, even large ones in the millions, fail to capture what is happening like powerful 
personal stories. One such story can be found in the tale of Danielle Watts. Mrs. Watts first spoke to the BBC a year ago, and this morning, BBC Breakfast provided an update. I've extracted 13 of my own teeth. We first met last summer when Danielle told me how she lived with pain every day and felt ashamed about how she looked, but she just couldn't find an NHS dentist. There are no dentists. I'd love to be able to ring a dentist up and say, my teeth are falling out, I need help. But every time I do, it's like, sorry, we're not taking on NHS patients anymore. Private treatment would cost thousands of pounds, money Danielle simply didn't have. She was at the end of her tether. But then something amazing happened. I can smile. I don't have to hide anymore. You look amazing. You look very different. I mean, you can see it. You can yeah. absolutely see it. I, I do feel, um, it's almost like I feel tingly, buzzy. No pain, no abscesses, no infection. Not being afraid, really. I can smile at people and not hide. Following our report last year, one of Danielle's friends suggested they try a fundraising website. And through the generosity of strangers, she was able to raise enough money to pay for private treatment and dentures, an act of charity that has transformed her life. To be able to talk to somebody face on, to be able to smile at somebody, is something I haven't done for several years. Just extraordinary, the idea that we're having GoFundMe now for people to put teeth in their mouths. On BBC Politics Live, Tory MP Jonathan Gullis acknowledged the crisis but appeared to use the COVID pandemic as the primary explanation. The government is trying to react as quickly as it can. There is no doubt that, of course, COVID had a major impact on the dental industry, particularly with the fact that, obviously, because of the close contact that they have mm. through either mouth, that they were not seeing patients as they normally were. That's then had an impact on uh, people working in that profession. But ultimately, there is now a 6.5% increase in dentists available as there was compared to 2010-11. Well, dentists, dentists, dentists operating in the NHS. There aren't, I don't think, more, literally more dentists in that sense, and obviously from a low bar. Well, there's more dentists operating, as I said, with the 6.5% increase. Mm. There's obviously the extra 50 million that's gone to create 350,000 additional appointments. There's obviously the three billion pounds per year funding that already goes into Let's the dentistry. Let's just look at what you've done plan. to the finances. Um, Under your government, over the last 10 years, we've seen the amount of money in real terms going into this sector drop by a quarter. So, of course, COVID has had an impact. Of course it has. But the way that you've treated this contract with dentists is a major part of how, the how much To pretend that this wasn't an issue before COVID, when there were 1,200 mm. dentists leaving the NHS and not being replaced, I think is really disingenuous. People couldn't get a dentist appointment mm. before COVID. So and during COVID, that whole process of people leaving mm. NHS dentistry was sped up because so they were completely change, ignored Would you change the contract? Michael, as many as 11 million adults aren't receiving adequate dental care. Did this start with COVID? No, and I mean, I, I suppose that, that clip of, you know, the, the woman who had to pull out six of her teeth, it reminded me of like a Ken Loach film from like mm. 1945, where you can imagine you have this sort of like deep sweeping piano music in the background where you're sort of, it's in black and white and you're looking for this, I can't believe people used to live like that. You know, thank God we became a civilized society after the Second World War. And then once again, you've got people pulling their own teeth out. It's completely bizarre. Um, this is obviously the same issue as we've seen with so many other parts of the NHS and so many other parts of the public sector since COVID, which is that you have a decade of a service being run down and then COVID comes along and then it falls over. 
Now with dentistry, obviously it works differently to the NHS because it's not, you know, it's not part of the NHS in the same way that say hospitals are. Um, what happens is that NHS or sorry, sort of independently self-employed dentists, they can have some private clients where they charge a higher fee and then you have to pay for all of it. And they have some NHS clients where the NHS pays the dentist and you pay a smaller fee, which is determined by the NHS. Now, I think what the government have been doing over the past decade is trying to save money by cutting those fees to dentists and hoping that the dentists will sort of just, just take it. Obviously, if you're a dentist and you're getting a, a lower fee from the NHS and you can get a higher fee from the private sector, you're going to go to the private sector. I mean, I also imagine, I'm not an expert on dentistry, of course, but I can imagine that sort of more people going for teeth whitening, more people going for Invisalign. I'm not against anyone getting teeth whitening or Invisalign, by the way. But th there being a broader range of things that people want on the private sector is meaning that the NHS probably has to raise its fees for basic services because you're, you know, the system works by competition. So you as a dentist, you're going to profit maximize probably, aren't you? So you're going to do whoever will pay you the most for an hour's dental care. And if you've got lots of people who want dental whitening and want Invisalign, and we haven't massively funded an increase in dentists, then the NHS are going to have to make sure that they pay dentists properly to give people fillings and to take out teeth and to do all of these kind of essential things. Or we, you know, we have a more properly publicly planned system whereby we say we need this many dentists. So we're going to pay to train this many dentists, a bit more like how we have in the NHS. Of course, they've also uh, driven the NHS down into a ditch. But I, I suppose it's, it's, it's a similar cause via a different mechanism, which means that an essential public service is was on its knees, COVID came along, and now it's on its face. Yeah, I suppose in contrast to the NHS, though, you know, dentistry, even in the mid-2000s, when, when the rest of the NHS was, you know, by comparison today, something of a Rolls-Royce service, dentistry has been bad for a really, really, really long time. I mean, and, and now I think things, because of COVID, you're right to say, I think, are, are really coming to a head now, COVID and, you know, um, 13 years of austerity. Speaking personally, and it's something I'd love to hear from our audience this evening, I said at the top of the show, my own dentist was an NHS dentist, and then they're not. And I, I cannot get my head around that. How you have a dentist, there would have been people using that dentist, and they have two, three kids. And now that's a real challenge in terms of accessing dentistry for those children. I don't even know how that's that's meant to work, right? Um, so yeah, they're presumably going to have to go elsewhere. But as I said, with regards to the data, it's very hard to find an NHS dentist now. So we have major, major problems. Uh, like I said, there was also data about half of children not seeing a dentist in the last year. Just mind-blowing, mind-blowing. I didn't think this is what the future would look like when I was growing up. That's for sure. Next story. Last year, the UK government borrowed £13 billion less than expected. That's according to the latest figures from the Office for National Statistics. But although the amount borrowed is lower than expected, the national debt has risen to the highest level as a share of the economy since the 1960s. As you can see from this graph based on ONS data, the, date, the debt began to climb following the 2008 financial crisis. It then jumps up again during the pandemic, peaking at nearly 100% of GDP this year. Also lower than forecast was government spending last year. Despite energy subsidies worth more than £41 billion, public spending was still £17.2 less than expected. And spending is expected to fall even more this year as those subsidy schemes draw to an end. At the same time, borrowing is likely to drop too, with tax rises bringing in higher revenues and inflation, easing the interest payments on the national debt. 
And that begs the question, if you're borrowing less than you expected and you're spending less than you thought you would, what do you do with the spare cash? Well, predictably, the right-wing press knows what they want. This headline is from The Times. UK government borrowing bonus, Jeremy Hunt has more scope for tax cuts. And this is from The Telegraph. Jeremy Hunt gets £13 billion tax cut boost ahead of general election. Of course, the other option is to increase public spending. This stark graph from the FT shows how, according to the ONS, the value of the UK public sector has collapsed over the last 13 years. The net worth of the public sector began to fall after the 2008 financial crisis, when public spending slowed and borrowing increased. That means that public sector debt began to outstrip the value of its assets. At 13 years of underinvestment due to austerity policies, then throw in increased extra borrowing because of stagnating growth, and the problem only amplifies. It's worth saying that the latest ONS report is the first time they've published figures showing the declining value of our public sector and its assets. One response to that came from the Resolution Foundation, an independent think tank aiming to improve living standards for low and middle income families. They said this. The UK has a public sector net worth, the value of its total assets minus its liabilities, including non-financial assets, deficit of £605 billion, up from around £530 billion last year. This continues a long-term trend of significant decline in net worth, which has fallen substantially from the surpluses recorded by the ONS pre-financial crisis, i.e. before 2008. Along with high borrowing during repeated crises, this is the result of Britain's long-term failure to invest in or manage well public assets. A narrow fiscal rule focus on net debt rather than net worth has given governments too little incentive to turn this around. But doing so should be a priority in the decade ahead, says the Foundation. Those pretty shocking figures, as well as large-scale industrial disputes in the public sector, make a pretty compelling case for investing that extra cash in the public sector. But the government's focus isn't on tax cuts or on the public sector. Instead, it's obsessed still with the national debt. Here's Jeremy Hunt saying that in response to those latest figures, these numbers reflect the inevitable consequences of borrowing eye-watering sums to help families and businesses through a pandemic and Putin's energy crisis. We stepped up to support the British economy in the face of two global shocks, but we cannot borrow forever. Well, actually, Jeremy, that's precisely what governments do. We now have a clear plan to get debt falling, which will reduce the financial pressure we pass on to our children and grandchildren. Michael, we're dealing with pseudoscience here, but more of that in a moment. Giving junior doctors what they want would cost around a billion pounds. We know that around one in three of them are looking to leave the NHS, so that would seem quite a wise use of money, and we have 13 billion coming out of nowhere. How should we spend this cash? I mean, there's a bunch of ways we could we could we could spend this cash. I think that that would probably be very high up on the list. Um, I imagine Rishi Sunak is being told by a bunch of his backbenchers and a bunch of people in his cabinet that instead he should be cutting taxes on his wealthy mates. Um, I'm, I mean, I, I, you've used the word pseudoscience there. I do think that's correct. Like, I mean, I I, I can't see, I don't, I can't think of any examples from history where you've got a really successful government which is sort of making its people richer by doing this completely bizarre accounting each year whereby 
suddenly 13 billion pounds emerges because you've got a little bit more in tax, a little bit less in tax. Like, what we need to be doing is long-term planning, long-term planning so that we have a, a genuinely richer society and a more functioning state. This idea that we just, like, how many people in the treasury are just working on all of this pointless bean, bean counting, right? And then people say, oh, look, Liz, you know, we, we, we saw what happened when you don't do the bean counting. Liz Truss came along. She didn't let the OBR go through her figures and the OBR, the Office Budget Responsibility, and then the financial markets freaked out. One, I think that's probably a good reason to not give the financial market so much power. But even accepting they do have the power they have, all the people I've spoken to about this, you know, people who work in the city or economists, they're like, the issue wasn't so much that, you know, the I's hadn't been dotted and the T's crossed. It was that the plan just didn't make any sense. So essentially what Liz Truss was saying they were going to do is they were going to spend loads of money, especially on, you know, supporting people's energy bills and cut taxes on everyone and then just hope for the best. And people looked at that and said, that is not a credible, credible plan. These are not serious people. But if you come forward with a credible plan and you come across as serious people, you're not going to have a currency crisis. And then you, you don't have to do this, this constant bean counting whereby, oh, no, we've got to cut things by 7 billion. Oh, we, oh now magically we can increase them by 13 billion. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, what you want to have is, is a government which is serious about long-term planning. I mean, talking about assets is interesting. So, you know, framing this less in terms of day-to-day -day deficits or surpluses, but actually how much is the public sector worth? I was saying, what, 600 billion pounds in deficit. Now, where could we look for an example of a, a country which hasn't fallen into this trap? Norway, they have a sovereign wealth fund, which is worth $1.4 trillion or $1.2 trillion, 1.4, it depends depending on where you look, but we're in that range, $1.2 trillion. So twice as much as, you know, it could pay off our deficit twice, right? And that is because they nationalized their North Sea oil instead of selling it off. So we both, we, we, it's a very good comparison for our country because we both had access to North Sea oil. What did Thatcher do? She sold it off and then used the revenue to essentially fund a bunch of tax cuts. And what did the Norwegians do? They said, oh, look, we've got all of these assets in the ground. Why don't we invest these? And then we can have uh, a long-term well-funded public sphere. I think this ends up paying for a bunch of people's pensions. And now they're a rich country. So selling off all the family silver in the 1980s and then accepting that as being a good idea in the 1990s and, and, and 2000s, and then deciding that even after selling off everything, now we're going to degrade the few things we have left through austerity was just a completely insane government policy but by successive governments, right? And, and we could be Norway. We could have a sovereign wealth fund worth $1.2 trillion. We could be talking about all the wonderful things we could spend that on. Instead, we sort of magically managed to find a few billion pounds down the back of the sofa and we can decide whether or not to make junior doctors a little bit less poor than they already are, given that we cut their wages by 25% since 2010. And it just flies in the face of so much mythology that you get from, from capitalism, right? So what's the one thing that conservatives and people on the centre-right, and let's be real, Labour too, on the centre-left, what's the one thing they encourage people to do? To buy. It's a house. They say, invest in a house, it'll, you know, it'll, it'll, you'll make returns, it's good for your security, invest in your future. Why don't they apply the same logic to the state? Or when they're eulogising businessmen in the private sector, business people in the private sector, well, they invested and then it's, the, the business has grown and it's created value and now they're wealthy. Why can't the same thing happen with nation-states? They have the precise opposite logic when it comes to the public sector that they apply to things like housing with, with you or I, all the regards to business people at the highest level of commerce. It doesn't make any sense. The point is, it's not meant to. It's ideological. Next story. In November 2020, Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump to become the 46th president of the United States. 
he assumed office the following January. Today, Biden declared that he would be running for a second term. Freedom. Personal freedom is fundamental to who we are as Americans. There's nothing more important, nothing more sacred. That's been the work of my first term, to fight for our democracy. This shouldn't be a red or blue issue. To protect our rights, to make sure that everyone in this country is treated equally and that everyone is given a fair shot at making it. But you know, around the country, MAGA extremists are lining up to take on those bedrock freedoms, cutting Social Security that you paid for your entire life while cutting taxes for the very wealthy, dictating what health care decisions women can make, banning books and telling people who they can love, all while making it more difficult for you to be able to vote. When I ran for president four years ago, I said we're in a battle for the soul of America, and we still are. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead, we have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer. I know what I want the answer to be, and I think you do too. This is not a time to be complacent. That's why I'm running for re-election. Because I know America. I know we're good and decent people. I know we're still a country that believes in honesty, respect, and treating each other with dignity. That we're a nation where we give hate no safe harbor. We believe that everyone is equal, that everyone should be given a fair shot to succeed in this country. Thank you for choosing us. Every generation of Americans has faced a moment when they have to defend democracy. Stand up for our personal freedom. Stand up for the right to vote and our civil rights. And this is our moment. So if you're with me, go to JoeBiden.com and sign up. Let's finish this job. I know we can. Because this is the United States of America. There's nothing, simply nothing we cannot do if we do it together. And that was Joe Biden's campaign launch video released today. Now, on the one hand, it shouldn't be surprising Biden is standing again in 2024. After all, he's the incumbent. And only several presidents have failed to even try for a second term in the White House. But on the other hand, given his age, it's a big deal. Joe Biden will be 82 years old in 2024, and he'll be 86 at the end of any prospective second term. It's not ages to say that's a major variable. This is a job that will be physically challenging for someone in their 30s, let alone a half century later. And if you think that Biden's age is a problem, turns out you're not alone. That's because, according to an NBC poll, seven in 10 Americans do not want Joe Biden to run. That includes 51% of Democrats. Nearly half cited his age. 
However, in good news for the president, 88% of Democratic respondents said they would definitely or probably vote to re-elect him, with 83% saying they currently approve of his job performance. Of course, the current favorite to land the Republican nomination is former President Donald Trump, who was recently indicted over hush money payments made to a porn star and who is currently embroiled in a civil rape trial. And while he's far from popular with the US electorate, Trump does seem to currently fare better than Joe Biden. 60% of respondents think Trump shouldn't run again. Remember, that figure is 10% higher for Joe Biden. And whereas over half of Democrats think Biden shouldn't stand for re-election, that figure falls to 33% for Republicans who think Trump should step aside. That same survey also found Biden's approval rating had fallen to 41%. As you can see here, Biden's approval is trending down since entering office, which is completely normal, but it's now lower than Donald Trump was at the same point during his presidency. It's important to say that Clinton and Obama were on similar numbers two years in. But the experience of those two does indicate that Biden would need to see his numbers edging up over the coming years. It's very much now or never for the Democrats. Joe Biden versus Donald Trump two years ago, you'd have thought, you know, this is the sign of an empire in decline. You've got one person who is uh, way past his best. Joe Biden, when you listen to him sort of in the 1990s, I mean, I think actually his politics have got less objectionable over time. He seems to have mellowed out a little bit. But he was a much sharper speaker. And you had him versus Donald Trump, who's obviously the biggest idiot that's ever been in the White House. You thought that this, this must be, um, you know, the low point of American empire. And they're going to sort of, to some degree, recover from this, especially after January the 6th, when people thought, oh, this must be Trump over. And now, four years later, the best America has to offer is still going to be Joe Biden and Donald Trump, but both of them even older and less coherent than they were in the 2020 election. I mean, is it a mistake? I, I suppose why the Democrats do seem relatively united behind Joe Biden is because of the midterms. So the midterms, the polling also wasn't looking good for the Democrats. We were saying, well, why the hell is he talking about democracy and saving the American constitution against these extremists in the Republican Party? This is all incredibly abstract. Why isn't he talking about the economy? Why isn't he talking about wages? And then actually the Democrats outperformed the Republicans. Well, they lost the House, of course, but they, they outperformed expectations. Normally the, the party who has the presidential incumbency does quite badly in the midterms. The Democrats didn't. And in those elections, we also saw that the Trumpist candidates did pretty poorly. So the Democrats are thinking, look, the Republicans look like they're going to put forward Donald Trump. What's worked for us before when it came to defeating Trump, oh, the 2020 election when Biden won, and oh, the 2022 midterm elections when the Democrats led by Joe Biden outperformed expectations and actually did pretty well, especially against those Trumpist Republican candidates. Joe Biden is not encouraging any enthusiasm among anyone, but is he the, the candidate that puts off the least number of people and therefore can win over the most people who would maybe otherwise go for Trump? if they faced a Democratic candidate who it was easier to sort of demonize. Being old and being a little bit, you know, not as articulate as someone once was, that will decrease enthusiasm for a candidate. But I think it's probably less of a block because it doesn't terrify anyone, you know, compared to someone who they think has like completely opposite values to them. So I can see why the Democrats think that Joe Biden is a safe pair of hands, even though it's a real indictment of American democracy, that this is the choice and that the American people are going to be given. Michael, I'm so happy you raised all those points. We're about to touch on some of them. You might be watching this and thinking, Aaron, quit it with the scare stories. You're on the left. You want Biden to fail. You want Trump to win. You want a bit of drama. Absolutely not. 
Uh, Biden beat Trump by nearly 7 million votes in 2020 and won the Electoral College by 74 votes. It wasn't even close. Only it was incredibly close. With Biden's victory, the result of a narrow uh, set of uh, wins in a handful of states, with just 44,000 votes in Georgia, Arizona, and Wisconsin separating Biden from Trump when it came to a potential tie in the Electoral College. So you look at several constituencies, we call them in the UK, several states in the United States, 44,000 votes between the two men. So margins matter. After all, Trump won the race to become president in 2016 because of 80,000 votes in a cluster of marginal states, places like Pennsylvania. So it can absolutely happen again. Michael, could we see a repeat of 2016? We could do. I mean, I, I, I think you'd be an idiot to sort of rule it out. I mean, I suppose what 2020 showed is that Joe Biden is a much better candidate than Hillary Clinton, even though obviously she's a more coherent speaker. Biden is easier to ac accuse him of cognitive decline than it is Hillary Clinton. But Hillary Clinton ran a campaign where she essentially thought she had the right to be president and she didn't run on very much at all and then demonized lots of people. So, you know, yeah. she's calling Trump's people the deplorables. She's calling the Bernie people these sort of sexist misogynists. She seemed like a, a candidate who was very divisive. I mean, obviously, you know, it's not all her fault. It's also partly because there was a right-wing campaign to sort of build her up as the devil incarnate for a very long period of time. But there were a lot of people who really, really hated Hillary Clinton. And so that meant that there were a lot of people that voted for Donald Trump because they were generally keen about that guy. But there were also a lot of people that voted for Donald Trump because they thought Hillary Clinton was devil incarnate. And Joe Biden hasn't succumbed to sort of a similar perspective or a similar sort of, he, he isn't seen in the same way by the American people as Hillary Clinton was. I mean, maybe there is some misogyny going on there, but I think it is also potentially the, the arrogance of her campaign, which Joe Biden seems quite capable of, of avoiding. At the same time, again, Donald Trump is a very different candidate to that which he was in 2016. So in 2016, Donald Trump was talking about things that American people actually really cared about, trade, jobs, um, and migration. You know, we have to be real here. Lots of people would have voted for him because they're a bit racist and very xenophobic, right? I think one of the reasons why he did poorly in especially the midterms is because what do people associate Donald Trump? Well, obviously he wasn't standing there, but his candidates, why they did poorly in the midterms is because what defined a Trumpist candidate then was that they thought the 2020 election was stolen. So it was all about Donald Trump. It's very self-referential, let's say. It's all about whether or not Donald Trump was wronged or righted or blah, 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 blah. He's not talking about those issues that people cared about in 2016 and had been ignored by the political establishment. He was just talking about himself. It looks very different to, to 2016. Does that mean it's impossible for Donald Trump to win? Absolutely not. But I think that the election is not going to go the same way that the 2016 did in terms of the issues that are being talked about, the dynamic of the of the general campaign. So if Donald Trump wins, I think it will be, you know, for different reasons, let's say. It might even be the case that there are different swing states in 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 2024 as compared to 2016. Yeah, I think there's two reasons on this, right? One is that it's going to be that cluster of states again, sort of ex-Rust Belt, Pennsylvania, Kansas. Florida's not really imply that's going to go to the Republicans again, almost certainly. But like you say, Places like Texas are, are gradually becoming more and more marginal over time, and the Democrats might spring a surprise there, just like they did in Georgia in 2020. Michael, I'm going to have to pin you down here, though. You're very evasive. I mean, looking at that data with regards to approval ratings, where Biden is, and we know that because of the composition of the Electoral College, the Democrats have to win the popular vote by 3 or 4% to actually win. I don't think the fact that Biden will win the popular vote is in any doubt whatsoever. 
<laughs> famous last words, but you know, I think the last time Republican won the popular vote was in 2004, George W. Bush versus John Kerry. They don't win the popular vote, but they don't need to win the popular vote. Michael, yes or no? I would say Biden will, will beat Donald Trump in 2024. That's my bet. Final story. It'll come as a surprise to absolutely no one that Elon Musk is a pretty weird guy. From 3am tweet rants to calling the man who rescued 12 Thai boys trapped in a cave a, quote, pedo, he's never shied away from controversy. But now he appears to have done something so unhinged, it makes everything that came before look pretty basic. The story begins with this post from Musk trying to advertise Twitter's new monetization feature. This is great. But that circular photo, you can see there in the top right, so you've got his AVI and then another one to its right, indicates that Musk has an alt account, a burner that he uses when he doesn't want to use his main account. Not long after, a Twitter sleuth appeared to have tracked Mr. Musk down. We've got one of his tweets here. Oh my God, I found his burner. The account's name is Elon Test and its handle is at Ermin Musk. The profile picture is of a small boy who appears to be Musk's son, generally known as X, because his actual name is too weird to say, who he had with the singer Grimes. I believe she's read my book. Uh, must have some good taste, if not in men. In the image, he's holding a model of Musk's starship. Just one more bit of evidence for you. The last tweet was this one. I will finally turn three on May 4th. That's now got 1.6 million views. I presume that since it was uncovered. Elon Musk's son turns three on May 4th too. How strange. Assuming this is Musk's alt in which he poses as his three-year-old son, then these are the kinds of things he likes to post. On a thread about the CEO of Almeida, sister company of Bust FTX, whose founder Sam Bankman-Fried is facing criminal fraud charges, Musk, using his son's image, posted this. I love librarians. And this is in response to a picture of that young woman. On another thread about Sam Bankman-Fried, Elon Musk not posing as anyone posted this. Man fucks five million people at once. It's a parody of a Pornhub video, a, a, a pornography video. Of course, he's referring to fraud. Uh, but then under the account purporting to be a two-year-old toddler, he also seemingly posted this. Is this a real peon video? Presumably, he means porn. And then there was this in reply to a post by Airbnb CEO, Brian Chesky. Brian Chesky tweeting, it feels like we were in a nightclub and the lights just turned on. Elon Test, what nightclub were you at? I wish I was old enough to go to nightclubs. They sound so fun. I mean, the ironic thing is that Elon Musk is probably too old to go to nightclubs. Uh, Michael, what's your take on this? We, we associate Elon Musk with some pretty random weird, bizarre behavior. This really takes the biscuit, doesn't it? It's not confirmed that this is his alt account, you know, because it's just, it, it could be it, 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 sort of that association of that screenshot with this account. But it's uh, on I his mean, phone. There is, a, there is a lot of circumstantial evidence for it. No, but I suppose his phone has just proved that the, 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 the AV, that his alt is the AV that that account is, right? So it could be that there's more than one account with that AVI. But I mean, there is lots of circumstantial evidence that it is his account. And it looks like how he tweets, right? So if you look at the tweets, this is how Elon Musk tweets. Because he is, and we, we talk about Elon Musk a lot on this show. I mean, I do think that clearly he's an intelligent guy. Clearly, when it comes to certain industries, he is an innovator. SpaceX, very interesting company. Um, Tesla, 
Um, I think has sped up the development of electric cars. Very interesting, clearly a smart guy. When it comes to Twitter, he is just an idiot. Like he's not remotely funny. He's obsessed with trying to be funny. Um, this alt account does seem like his sort of really crap sense of humor, essentially. And then the other thing I suppose to say is that, you know, Elon Musk in the circles he moves is constantly talking about sort of like how Twitter was 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 full of child porn and it was it was letting off child abuse, et cetera, et cetera. And sort of they pose themselves as these sort of saviors against and, and battlers against um the, the moral depravity of 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 liberals is what they seem to think. But Twitter, since he's taken over, just my message request is full of porn bots. Every time I tweet, there's like a, you know, one of the hidden tweets is like some kind of porn video. And now you've got him, you know, tweeting, posing as a three-year-old child talking about porn and well if it's him and i i I think the whole thing is just gross and annoying and he should have kept to cars and and spaceships not spaceships rockets yeah it is concerning isn't it i mean this is the world's richest man michael uh do do you think there's something deeper to 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 elon musk do you think there's something perhaps a little bit disturbing about his behavior because it's easy to make light of all this stuff just how sort of ridiculous it is but he does wield immense political cultural and social power this is somebody who owns twitter well, he's the ceo of twitter a number of people own it but he's the he's the front man for the operation do, do you think that this latest revelation indicates that actually perhaps we shouldn't be laughing at elon musk but take him a bit more seriously well i mean we should be take i mean the issue is I, I suppose the thing with elon musk right is he did have a lot of economic power and he did have cultural power in the sense that people took him seriously when it came to talking about rockets or cars right because people would recognize that he had been a part of a key part of building some very successful and innovative companies i think what happened is the guy wanted cultural power like he really wanted to be loved and respected and be seen as as funny um that wasn't really offered to him because he's quite strange and he's he's not particularly endearing or charismatic he seems socially very bizarre person and so what did he do he used his cash to buy cultural power by default and what we're seeing is that so i mean the, the worrying thing is that you have someone who is rich enough to buy that much cultural capital by default because obviously if you buy twitter which is the you know the 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 public i think he was somewhat right to say is the public sphere of sort of like um the international global, well, I suppose, especially in, in, in the West, because they don't use it in China. But this is the sort of sphere where we have so many public debates on Twitter. And, you know, he had a, an active account, lots of people followed him, but he wasn't particularly persuasive when it came to lots of big political and cultural questions. And he was like, I want to be more influential, so I'm going to buy the goddamn thing. And the, the problem is that we live in a society where there are a few people who are so rich, they can be a little bit peeved that people aren't finding them as funny as they thought, and then say, fuck it, I'm going to buy the whole goddamn thing. And I do think he is running it into the ground, which is a shame because, you know, all the problems that we say Twitter has, and I think that's especially, you know, as much about the users as, as the platform, or it always was, sort of the, the way people approach it, um, is, is, is potentially going to be lost because this idiot wanted more people to listen to him. I think that's one of the big downsides of uh oligarch wealth in the early 21st century. We've got somebody whose personal wealth is basically akin to a, you know, a small country, and I think he might be a little bit more disturbed than we we often realize. Michael, thank you for joining me this evening, rather. You were as great as ever. It's been a pleasure as always. Thank you. 
just to say, people, I've got a bit of a dust allergy today. I think we need to give a little bit of a spring clean to Navarra Studios. Thanks, everyone, for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.